0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. You know, I was struck this morning as I was just kind of reflecting back a little bit on how different things are from just a year ago. And, and I mean that in a, in a positive manner. Uh, this time last year, two weeks before Easter Sunday, or I guess a week before Easter Sunday. Is it a week before? Two weeks before Easter Sunday. <laughs> you, we better, had, you better figure it out. Yeah, we had, uh, we, had le- we had less people in our combined services than we did in first service alone. Lord has really been faithful to sitting on a hill and there's so many new faces here and, and I'm so I'm, I'm so happy about that I'm so anxious to meet so many of you um that's the first major difference the second major difference is that it's like we have this whole new version of, of James Reeves with the boots and the hat
1: <laughs> okay with that lead-in I got to tell you this story I got these boots yesterday look at these are python five hundred dollar boots I got them for 179 bucks. Yep. Okay. That's a steal. Now the reason I quit wearing Western stuff many years ago is I had a very expensive pair of boots and I'd had them for years and I wore them out and I wasn't about to spend the money to you know get what you know the expensive ones, but I was too spoiled to wear cheap ones and so I just quit wearing Western stuff 30-something years ago, mm-hmm. and. When I started doing a lot of traveling up north, I thought, you know, I need to start representing Texas and just go back to my roots, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I started getting stuff. Well, yesterday, yesterday, my wife, these came in yesterday, okay, online. My wife said, do you have a girlfriend or something? And I said, well, no. What are you thinking about? And she said, well, in 43 years of knowing you, I've never known you to care about what you look like or what you wore. (laughs) And all of a sudden, and I said, "Well, I'm having to reward robe. I mean, all my Western stuff is gone." And then I thought, "Well, oh, I'm kind of excited. She thinks I have enough energy for a girlfriend <laughs> at 68. <laughs> I mean, wow! So I was feeling pretty good about
0: myself." <laughs> she goes, "He's dressing up, and I know it's not for me. So, if you know so, Laura Reeves, this is so not
1: then, Laura then, Reeves. And then, yeah, this is not my wife's look that she would choose for me. <laughs> no." Uh, it, it, and then I thought, well I guess I better make a public announcement because other people might be thinking the same thing. I don't have a girlfriend, okay? I don't have time for one. And uh, you know, so anyway. That, that's
0: that's good news. That is uh that is good news. <laughs>
1: I guess in these days and times where so many pastors are having girlfriends, you know, you want to be sure. uh, I'm I'm telling the truth. No girlfriend.
0: Well, welcome in. Glad that you guys are here. If you're a guest, you're probably wondering, what have I done (laughs) coming here (laughs) to this place? We are glad that you have made it. Uh, And as I said a moment ago, if you have any questions during this message or things that just stand out to you, uh, come up and ask them afterwards. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to to be able to uh, just get a chance to speak with you for a moment. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in our verse-by-verse study. Study through the book of Nehemiah, we have titled this series under the influence, and there's a reason for that. Usually, when uh, when when churches go through studies on the book of Nehemiah, it's usually couched in the framework of leadership, and, and that terminology I think freaks a lot of people out because they hear the term leader and they think, well, that's that's not me you know i'm not a leader and then they kind of just check out on the whole deal because that doesn't apply to where they think they are in life but the reality is is that if you are are willing to be pliable to the holy spirit's leading god will use you to influence anyone in your life whether it be at work or in your family your community god will use you to be an influencer for the kingdom of god and so this morning We are going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last Sunday, we talked about how influencers get the job done, or as our West Texas brethren say. Get it did. Get it did. We talked about that last weekend. Uh, One reality that James touched on last week is the fact that whenever you begin to do what God has asked you to do, there will inevitably be a 1% to 2% people who we would call inhibitors That just will oppose you no matter what you do. No matter what it is that's on the table, they're going to say no. They inhibit whatever they can because deep down they are opposition oriented. They don't even have any real opinion on the good or the bad of the things that are happening. They are just naturally oriented towards opposition. They're inhibitors. And if we're being honest, uh, certainly I would assume most of you have dealt with these kinds of people in your life at one level or another... They're hard to deal with, are they not? It's just a beating, if we're being honest. We're we're in church, we need to be honest. It's a beating, it's annoying, it's tiresome. No one enjoys it, but it's also a reality. It's a reality that you will have to contend with at some point in your life. And so we have to know how to deal with this when it happens. As Christ followers, as influencers for the kingdom, we have to know how do we handle this type of opposition, this type of what we'll call ridicule. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. But before we jump into the text, I want to draw a distinction here between two types of opposition. Uh, that are very prevalent, one of which we're going to deal with, one of which we are not going to deal with this morning, Uh, and and I want to begin by asking this question that whenever someone opposes you, I want you to ask, are they bringing constructive criticism to me or are they just ridiculing me? Because they're not the same thing. Constructive criticism and ridicule are different types of opposition. Not all objections are created equal, right? Right. And so we need to know the difference between these two things because we handle these two different types of opposition very differently. There are times in my life when I have been... um, At least I believed I was walking according to the Spirit. I was walking in obedience, carrying out God's plan for me. And there were people in my life that raised objections to what it was that I was doing with the intent to help me. They saw a lack of wisdom in one area of my plan. And and, and so they opposed me, not in order to tear me down, but in order to make my plan better and in order to build me up. I would call that constructive criticism. And it is a good thing. It's meant to make the plan better. It's meant to make me better. So one uh, way that I'm actually walking through this right now in my life, I am in the uh, dissertation phase of my doctorate. I begin chapter one this semester, and uh, I have an advisor who his sole job (laughs) is to provide criticism to me. And he enjoys it. And he enjoys it. And he's good at it. And he's paid to do it. He asked me in the beginning of this process, when I first, when I first got into the program, he said, uh, how do you like to take your criticism? And I said, I don't know, with sugar and cream? What do you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, some people don't like criticism, so I have, to, I have to kind of structure it in a way where they're able to receive it. And I said, well, no, I'm, just give it to me. I'm not here to make friends. I got plenty of friends in my life. I need an advisor. I need someone who's going to make me better. And his whole job is just to shoot holes in anything that I come up with. Because if I get to a point where he can't shoot holes in it, and there you go. now You're I'm on track. to something. Right? The intent is to grow and succeed. Yeah. And, and there's a biblical example for this as well. Exodus chapter 18 Uh, we see that Moses has uh, successfully led the people under God's direction out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They are headed towards Canaan, the land, the promised land that God has given to his people. And uh, while they're in the wilderness, Moses' role, one of his roles, is to uh, essentially settle disputes between the people of God. Anything from frivolous disputes to major problems, he is there to judge and give wisdom to whatever it is that's happening. The problem is, is there's thousands of Hebrews that are with him, and so he spends from the moment he wakes up, he pours his coffee, right, because Hebrews is a terrible joke. He, he, that's so bad. He, I, it's terrible. Yeah. I... I swung and missed first service. I did it again. I didn't learn my lesson. He gets up. He, he deals with it from the moment he's awake to the moment he falls asleep. And so Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to him and opposes him. He, uh, Exodus 18, 17, it says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, This thing that you are doing is not good. I mean, that sounds like opposition, right? <laughs> Jethro is an inhibitor. But not really. Keep reading. 18, says, you will surely wear out, both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. And then he goes on and he begins to uh, unfold essentially the first delegation plan where he is to set up specific leaders to handle specific subsets of God's people. And then if they have questions, they can come to Moses, but then they lead the people in the way that they uh, see fit. And, and and so it's a really amazing deal. Jethro raises objections, but not to tear him down, to help him. Who would have believed you
1: could have get Really constructive criticism from, from, a father-in-law? Guy, from, from a guy named Jethro.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, from a dude named Jethro. Jethro. Yeah, he's saying, look, Moses, you can't do this by yourself. This is going to wear you out. It's going to put a strain on your marriage. And Jethro has some interest in that because he's mm-hmm. married to his daughter.
1: Yeah.
0: Let me help you, right? That is constructive criticism. There's another kind of opposition and one that we're going to be dealing with this morning, and I would call that ridicule. It's not helpful. It's not meant to build up. It's not, it's not meant to, to impart wisdom. It's meant to tear down. It doesn't care about your success. It doesn't care about giving you direction. It only wants to destroy. And the Bible describes people who give this kind of opposition, these ridiculing individuals, uh, it describes them in at least two words. The first one is the word scoffer, uh, perhaps not a word we use in our modern vernacular, but certainly something the Bible uses a lot. And, and the word here. It means someone who shows contempt. They're contemptful individuals. They're just not they're just not enjoyable to be around, right? <laughs> the second word it uses is the word mocker. And I love this in, in at least the Greek language, when the word mocker is used, it's the Greek word muktorizo. It's a word that literally means to turn up the nose. It's people who walk around like this, right? High the, the more nose you have, the more you can turn your nose. Right, it up. exactly. Yes. Yeah, these, these are people who ridicule others around them. And, and again, if we're just being honest, it hurts, right? It, it's, not an, it's not an enjoyable experience. It's unpleasant when people ridicule you. And so we need to know how to deal with that. And we find the answer in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah faces ridicule from an individual who is not interested in his success. He's not interested in the wall being rebuilt. He's only interested in tearing him down and so we have a great opportunity this morning, I think, to just observe how Nehemiah weathers ridicule and how he responds to it. And so we're going to begin this morning. James is going to start us off with the ridicule.
1: If you're a guest with us and you haven't been a part of this series, and you're going to kind of be lost historically or where we are. But here's the, here's the basic historical viewpoint. In 587 B.C., almost six centuries before Christ, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, leveled the city, tore down Solomon's temple and completely destroyed the wall of protection around around the city. And the Babylonians then carried the Jews off into captivity. Eventually, the Persians came along and beat up on the Babylonians. So now, for 150 years, the Jewish people have been off in captivity under the heavy hand and in captivity to, to the Persians. And there's been a little bit of going back over the course of time and rebuilding some of the city. But the one thing that hadn't been done is the wall of protection around the city had not been rebuilt. And God puts that on Nehemiah's heart. That he is going to be the one that God is going to use to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that wall around the city. And this was one giant wall, okay. They say that historically the original wall was wide enough for two chariots to run all the way around the top of the wall. And it was 18 to 20 feet tall. It had to be in order to protect them from opposing armies. And so that's where we are. Nehemiah now has gone back to Jerusalem. He's surveyed the wall. He's rallied the people. And they're actually on the wall doing the work. And then we come in chapter 4 where we come to this issue where there are those that want to stop the work. They want to deter Nehemiah and the people from actually rebuilding the wall. And so in verse 1, it mentions a fellow by the name of Sanballat. And we're going to hear about him for chapters. It says, now it came about... That when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Now, there's that one of those words, mocked, Mocked. which literally means to ridicule. You go, well, who is this guy, Sanballat? Well, Sanballat was not a Jew. He was a governor that had been placed in power by the Persian king. And his area was particularly the area of Samaria. You're familiar with where the Samaritans were in the New Testament. That was the area where he was a governor. And so he wasn't really all that far from Jerusalem. And he did not want the wall rebuilt around the city. We'll talk about why in just a moment. So he began to do everything he could to stop the work. And it begins in chapter 4 with ridiculing Nehemiah and the Jews that are doing the work. And when that didn't work... Then in chapter 6, he's going to actually get together some folks and plan violence in order to kill them to stop the building of the wall. He was serious about not wanting that wall to be rebuilt. And so in chapter 4, though, he starts off with ridicule for the purpose of demoralizing Nehemiah and the workers so that they would stop the building of the wall. And in verse 2, what happens in verse 2 is he gathers people together and he starts a full-scale propaganda campaign to get all these people to join with him against the Jews and Nehemiah who were doing the work on the wall. And in verse 2, this is what he says to the crowd that is there. In the hearing of Nehemiah and the Jews, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now, this is what's going on here. Sanballat wants to stop the work. He wants to demoralize the workers, so he gathers people around, and he begins to work them all into a froth to join with him in opposition of the work on the wall. Now, a quick aside for just a moment. One of the reasons that the scripture pronounces such condemnation on things like gossip, slander, uh, mocking, all of these things, negativism in general, is because these things always start with one person and then like a cancer, they begin to spread. And if you allow slander, if you allow gossip, if you allow all these things to go on, then eventually they'll bring destruction to whatever it is that God is doing. And so Scripture pronounces some pretty harsh words against these issues in our lives. Gossip, slander, mocking. In fact, in Romans one thirty. The apostle Paul is giving a description of these really ungodly people. I mean, really ungodly people. And this is what he says about them. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. I mean, this is some bad, bad stuff. And then he says, and on top of it all, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. It's almost like at the end he said, and they don't listen to what mom and dad say on top of it all. But right in the middle of all that, Of all those horrible things, he says, and by the way, they're full of envy, and they're gossips, and they're slanderers. You see, this whole issue of ridicule, mocking, gossip, slander, they're all in the same basket, is addressed in almost every book in the New Testament. Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians. He he speaks to young Timothy in the letters to Timothy. First Peter talks about it. First Corinthians, Colossians, Jesus even mentioned it in Mark chapter 7. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7, it says, He who slanders is a fool. And the Bible never has good things to say about a fool. But if you're a slanderer, if you're a gossiper, if you're negative like that, he says you're a fool. Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, Don't even associate with someone like that. Don't even associate with a gossip. Why? Because all of it is not meant to edify, it's not meant to build up, it's not meant to accomplish anything of worth and value, it is always destructive and devastating. So notice, here's Sanballat, he's using this tool, this technique that's been used since the beginning of mankind, in order to demoralize the workers, in order to deter them from the work. That God has called them to do. And it's very revealing how he does it. Because some things just never change. In other words, the way that this is done and the way that we tend to do this whenever we fall into that sin of doing this thing of ridicule and mocking. It always looks the same. And and nothing has really been new that's created. In fact, he asks five questions in verse 2. We're only going to deal with three of them because I don't have enough time to deal with the other two. But the the, the first three are really the key. He asks five questions rhetorically, and each one of them is meant to demoralize the Jews and Nehemiah from building the wall. And And all three of them are attacking questions. Here's the first one. He attacks them at the point of their heritage. In verse 2, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Now, put the emphasis on the word Jews. What do these feeble Jews think they're doing? And as I said a moment ago, Sanballat was not a Jew. He was a Persian. He had been placed there by the Persian king. And he had been assigned to the area of Samaria. And even though the Persian king had authorized the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, because if he hadn't, they couldn't have come from Persia to Jerusalem to do the work, even though he had authorized it, his underling, Sanballat, did not want to see the wall rebuilt. Because Sanballat knew if the wall was rebuilt and the city was refortified, then it would weaken his control and his ability to just march right into Jerusalem and do anything and take anything that he wanted to at any time. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to stop the work. And so you can hear this derision dripping in his voice. He said, what do these Jews think that they're doing? You know, sometimes one thing that people will use to bring you down, and I guarantee you everyone in this room has experienced this at one level or another. Sometimes people will use your heritage against you in order to defeat you and to bring you down. In other words, it's like, well, you know, uh, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to do that. But you know what? You don't really come from the right kind of family. You don't have the right kind of education. You don't have the right kind of house. You don't drive the right kind of car. You don't have the right color of skin in order to do that. Are you getting with me? Nothing's changed, has it? Now what are they trying to do? When they begin to attack you at the point of your heritage, they're trying to persuade you that you are less than yep. and that what you are attempting is you don't have the qualifications, you don't have the heritage. And if you're not careful, these kinds of things will exactly will do exactly what the ridiculer wants done. It will deter you from ever doing what God wants you to do in your life. I remember in 1990, <laughs> the... Tennessee Volunteers football team were playing the Arkansas Razorbacks in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Now, what is that, 37? 32. 32 years ago. Okay. Well, a buddy of mine from college, and I, I forgot, you know, when you start counting decades, who cares, a couple of years. But a buddy of mine from college who was an absolute nut had some tickets invited me to go to the game. And so I did. And so, you know, we're driving to Dallas toward the Cotton Bowl there in Fair Park. And when we got right, you know, probably this side of downtown Dallas, the traffic on 30 was just horrible because there were so many people packed up. And so we pulled up. I was driving, and my buddy was in the passenger seat. And we pulled up right next to this big red Suburban. That was red, so that ought to two you off who they were rooting for, right? But they really wanted you to know because they had decals of, of Razorbacks all over the suburban. And so we intelligently deduced that these are Arkansas Razorback fans. And the guy's driving the Suburban. He's got his arm out like this. And my buddy starts rolling down his window. And oh, my gosh, what is he going to do? He's going to get us in trouble. We're going to be in a fist fight before this is over here. They're going to come arrest me. And I'm going to have to explain to the church Sunday morning why I spent the weekend in jail. And sure enough, he did. It was Ken Ingram, by the way. Ralph and some of you people that remember Ingram, you know. you Okay. He, he rolled down the window. And this dude is right there. And he says, Ken says, your mama's a pig. And without missing a step, the guy says, you ain't wrong, Sue. <laughs> 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 and I immediately with relief went, whew, oh. man, I'm not going to have to go to jail. I mean, he had a good sense of humor about it. Now, that kind of ridicule was actually to him was a compliment, I guess, if you're from Arkansas. <laughs> but it was, it was all meant to be good natured. But that was not Ballot's purpose. Sanballat was saying the things about them and calling them Jews with this dripping derision in order to demoralize them. And I'll guarantee you, all of us here in this room, most of us here in this room, we've got some tapes that are going around in our heads. Oftentimes that they start early in childhood about who we are, right? Because of experiences we've had or way that we've been treated or, or the family we're born into. And those tapes... You know, go around, and then somebody comes along and says, your mama's a pig. You know, metaphorically speaking, whatever it is that your tapes are saying. Somebody says that, and all of a sudden, it gets reinforced with that statement, and you believe it, and it demoralizes you. It causes you to pull back. Are you with me here? I remember, and this is for me just a moment. Let me just give you a personal testimony here. I remember when I pulled onto the Baylor campus, Baylor University, I started in a college where if you could get the loans and get the grants, and we were poor, so I could get grants, and I could get the loans, and you could work to make a difference. You could go to school there. They didn't care if you just had a high school diploma, and that's about all I had because I dropped out of high school twice, and I would never opened a book until I got saved my senior year in high school, and then I graduated three months later and off to college, and so Baylor would have laughed at me if I'd applied to Baylor University right out of high school because academically it's very difficult to get into Baylor University as a freshman. So I went to this other little school and I was majoring in Bible and, and uh, uh, you know, I got my grades up and when I was a junior I transferred to Baylor. And the day I pulled onto the Baylor campus I knew I was out of place. Mm. This is what my brain was telling me. This is what that tape was telling me. Now no one was really saying it no one was saying, who are you? You don't belong at Baylor. They didn't say that because they didn't know me yet. <laughs> right? <laughs> Some of them, after they got to know me, thought, well, what are you doing at Baylor? But I was thinking it because those tapes and, and, and everything around me, everything in the atmosphere was saying to me what Sanballat was saying to the Jews. You're just Jews. What are you doing here? What do you think? How do you think you can accomplish this? And and here's here's what said it to me. Because they all had brand new cars. Mm. They came in as freshmen. And mom and daddy had bought them all a brand new car for graduation. And I pull up in my old beat up VW Volkswagen Beetle. And immediately I went, I don't know that I fit in here. Okay. And... Mom and dad had paid their way, and I had scrambled and scraped to get all the loans and the grants, and I was working two jobs and all that kind of stuff. There were semesters when I wasn't sure I was even going to get to go to school, and every time that happened, it was a reminder to me, You're out of your depth here, Reeves. You don't belong here. And no, though nobody was saying it, all of the situation was saying it to me, and it was reinforcing that tape in me. As a matter of fact, I was a Bible major because I wanted to go into ministry. And so when I went to Baylor, as a Bible major, we were required to take four semesters of New Testament Greek. And I was so afraid that I couldn't pass Greek. I was so afraid that I would fail Greek. I had put it off until my junior year when I only had four semesters left. And out of desperation, I had to take Greek. And it was was just kind of this idea of you're just not good enough to be here. And you really can't do it. Even though I had proved myself academically already somewhat by that time, I was scared to death of Greek. And when I got into Greek, I made an A in Greek and I changed my major to Greek after the first semester. But these tapes were still going. Are you getting what I'm saying here? If I had listened to those tapes, if I had listened to the sand ballots in my life... I never would have done any of those things. And so oftentimes what happens is we allow these attacks upon our heritage to divert us away from what God wants us to do. I applied to law school and went to law school simply because of that tape that was in my head. Even though I was a dean's list student when I graduated from Baylor, I still didn't believe I had academic ability. Hmm. And so I had to prove it to myself by getting accepted into law school. And the Lord kicked my butt the whole time because that wasn't where I belonged. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you tracking with this folks? Do any of you have these things that are going on in your head? See, ridicule hasn't changed in thousands of years. Sanballat knew he could attack their heritage because they were an enslaved people and maybe deter them. I wonder
0: how many of you feel that way. I don't belong here when you come to church. You know, like that, that's, that's the question I wonder It's like, and, and it's sadly often proven out in other churches. You come in, you feel like an outsider because in a lot of ways you really are. And, uh, and I hope that you don't experience that, and I hope that you hear from me. Uh, you are, the, the, the messier your background, the more welcome you're here, because you're with your people now. Yep. We all have messy backgrounds.
1: And I know I don't look like it.
0: <laughs> it may be
1: hard to believe. <laughs> I'm sure it's very, but get to know me, and you'll figure out, this guy hadn't got nothing going for him. Okay? <sighs> he got nothing going for him. So the second thing he attacks is their competence. Notice it's not that they're just Jews. He says they're feeble Jews. In other words, they're incapable. They have no capacity to pull this thing off. And actually, it would have been real easy for them to believe this. Because for almost 150 years since 587 BC they had been captives the city of Jerusalem had been lying in ruins and they were captives first to the Babylonians and then to the, to the Persians so for 150 years the Jewish people had not been able to own anything everything was just given to them just the bare necessities of life as captives in Persia they could do nothing without having permission from their captors and so generation generation after generation it would have been very easy for them to have adopted this idea that this project of rebuilding this thing and restoring the city is just so far beyond us. And so Sanballat says, who are these feeble Jews? What do they think they're doing? And then Tobiah, his kind of wingman in chapter 6 or verse 6 says, he gets into the act. And I love it. You know, Sanballat gets it started. Then little Tobiah, he gets in. He says, Yeah. If even a little fox gets up on their wall, he's gonna break it down. Read it. He says it exactly. I just quoted it. Send has is gotten it started now. Tobias joining in, and they're just gonna get everyone. You see, the idea is you aren't capable, you will fail. And so, ridiculers come along in order to deter you, in order to demoralize you, and if they'll attack your heritage, and then they'll attack your capacity to even do what it is that you're attempting to do. And then thirdly, he attacks their faith. In verse 3, he says, Can they offer sacrifices and build it in a day? Now understand this, folks. By this time, the temple had already been reconstructed. To some extent, enough to where they were able to begin the process of worship there, uh, of offering sacrifices, of reading of the scripture uh, from the from the temple steps, but but really everything was just everything was really kind of at this particular point just kind of in shambles. And and the idea here is that Sanballat is saying, "Do you think you can offer sacrifices to your God and that He's going to do this for you?" That he's going to enable you, that he's going to empower you to rebuild this wall? Now, given the circumstances, this could have been very powerful for these people. Because in every one of their minds, for generations of generations in captivity, don't you think the question was reverberating in their minds and even spoken at times? Where was God when the Babylonians came and destroyed our city in 586. If God cared about his people, why would he allow that? Where was God when our temple was destroyed and the wall was destroyed and we were carried away and our ancestors were carried away into captivity? Where was God? Mm. And so they're already very in their faith, probably right on the Right on the cusp of going, I don't know, is, does God even care? I mean, does He even exist anymore? The God of, we talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you understanding what I'm saying here? I mean, the, this was a seedbed for them to begin to question their faith. And so He says, Oh, offer your little petty sacrifices. Your God could care less about who you are and what you're doing. Now, folks, this is a prime tactic in our culture today, to try to deter us from the gospel, to try to deter us from walking in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our culture is now in what is called a postmodern culture. I'm not going to give you a philosophical uh, dissertation here about uh, modernism and postmodernism, but postmodernism, all scholars agree, is where we are as a culture. And the key thing about postmodernism and its ideology is that postmodernism denies the existence of objective truth. That there is no such thing as objective truth. That all truth is subjective. In other words, it's just your truth. And then I've got my truth. And truth is what each one of us decides is right for ourselves. Because you see, truth in itself does not stand outside of us. There is no objective truth. Well, our faith in Jesus Christ is based upon the existence of objective truth. Is it not? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was saying, truth is embedded. Im- embedded in me, is embodied in me, and so everything I say is true. Yet we live in a culture that says, no, there is no such thing as objective truth. That's just your truth that you've created, and I have another truth over here that I have created. Mm. So our, our understanding of truth in our culture is constantly under attack. And there are a whole lot of casualties that are happening. How many of you heard the term deconstructing faith? <laughs> Okay, if you haven't heard it, keep your ears up. You're going to hear it. I was, I was teaching at a conference, a men's conference in Baltimore last fall, and a young man that I spent some time with said to me across that table, he said, I'm in the process of deconstructing my faith. And I thank God that I understood what he meant because we were able to have about a two or three-hour discussion after that. This, is, this has become very popular. Let me give you a definition of deconstruction. It's, deconstructing is, when, is taking apart an idea, a belief, or a system separating into its smaller components so that you can examine each one of the components of that and determine whether it is something you need to hold on to based upon its foundation, based upon its truthfulness, based upon its usefulness, based upon whether it's making an impact. And so those who say they're deconstructing the Christian faith... Typically mean, if they're using the term correctly, that they're looking at all of the things that are part of the Christian faith and they're deciding that's not working, so that's not going to be a part of my faith. Mm. And that doesn't have really any foundation to it, so I'm going to get rid of that. And then at the end of that process, then they reconstruct what they now call their Christian faith. And so deconstruction actually comes in three parts. First of all, it starts with construction. You have to come to Christ, and you're constructing a biblical faith by studying, by understanding. And then because of, well, you begin to wonder, well, why isn't God doing this? and Why isn't God doing that? You become disillusioned, so you start deconstructing your faith. And at the end, you put away all of that stuff, and then you hold on to just this handful of things. And now you have reconstructed your Christian faith. But what you've done is you don't really have the Christian faith because it's not based upon the objective truth of who Jesus is. It's just based upon a truth that you've decided you want. Let me, let me, if I could interject for a moment. I think that... Well, you certainly can. You're the senior pastor. The, uh, I just work for you. That's right.
0: <laughs> the The whole concept of deconstruction usually rises out of pain. It's usually harm, trauma, pain, some kind of disappointment. experience, disappointment. Where And it usually involves someone in church leadership or some experience in the church where it leaves the person wondering, how can both my faith be true and this thing also have happened, right? And it creates this sort of crisis of conscience where then this process takes place. And, and the problem, the, the church is so complicit in this. I, I think we have to own that, that in, in two ways. One, In order to reconstruct your faith, in order to really deconstruct and reconstruct appropriately, determine the foundation or truthfulness of something, you have to know truth. You have to know foundation. And the church has, by and large, done a pretty crappy job of equipping people to know the truth and the foundations of Scripture. So what happens is, painful experience, I go to deconstruct this thing in my life, and I'm trying to weigh it or measure it against truth, but I haven't really been equipped with truth, so I am off the mark to begin with. Mm. You need a contractor at that point to come in and help you know how all of this works, and People usually don't do that. They try to go at it on their own. So it's, it, the, the reconstruction becomes a DIY project gone bad, right? But secondly, I, we're, we're complicit in it because in those painful moments, the church has not done a good job of calling out the sin and the problem of those experiences. Right now, probably at the forefront of all of this, is the, sexual, the endemic sexual abuse of women in the church today. And, and so what happens is a woman experiences this, either in her home or to someone connected in the church. She goes to the church to finally cry out after usually years and years of holding it in and it's handled either poorly or it's not handled at all. Mm-hmm. And so then this creates this crisis of conscience. How can this place be a, a place that I love, that celebrates this Jesus that how, I know in scripture? How God
1: be in this? Yeah, yeah.
0: And, 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 and for me to be treated this way. And so Thus, deconstruction takes place. It's one of the reasons why James has spent the last two years tirelessly working in the the Fearless series and now working on a Fearless series for men as well because the church has to be the place where when people hurt, they go to, they desire to go to. They think there's no other better place for me to go to than this place because they will give the kind of grace and attention that is needed to me in my moment of suffering and hurt. But instead, we haven't done that And so it creates this massive crisis of conscience and leaves people who are not equipped in the Scripture to deconstruct and reconstruct something that is just completely apart from Scripture. And what we have
1: to learn how to do and what we have to be willing to do is to accept the fact that we are all fallen creatures. Even those of us who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, we're fallen creatures. And to separate in our heart and our mind who God is and who who Jesus is and what the truth of our faith is, separate that from the things that sometimes people do who call themselves people of faith that are ungodly. And so what often happens is because of that trauma, because of that pain, then they will bring the two together and say, well, then I just need to deconstruct my whole Christian faith. Rather rather than saying, no, the faith is true, I need to confront the error. I need to confront the fact that this was not handled. I need to confront the sin rather than, deconstructing my faith. Yeah, because the the reality is is when they experience that and they think this isn't compatible with with scriptural Christianity, they're not wrong. Right. It isn't compatible. It isn't compatible. And it needs to be confronted. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of people are getting their panties all in a wad because I'm calling pastors to repentance all over the nation for the very fact that pastors are the blocks to getting this kind of help, hope, and healing work started in the church that we've been doing for 30 years. It's pastors that stop the implementation of the Fearless Series for Women. It's not the people. I get calls from from women all over the country every single day. They've taken it to their pastor and the pastor's in the way. And so that is a disconnect for people. But don't let it lead you to deconstructing faith. Let it lead you to confront sin, but do not abandon your faith. Mm. And you see, Sanballat knew the history of the Jewish people, and he knew that they had to have been asking the question, where was our God in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians came through and destroyed this place? Where has our God been for the last 150 years while we were living in bondage? Where is our God? And so for Sanballat to go, you think you're going to offer sacrifices to your God and it's going to make a difference? He could care less. And they were prime targets for the deconstruction and the demoralization of their hearts and their faith to give up the work. And here's how it happens. So you pray and you tell God, God, I need you to do this. And God doesn't hop (laughs) to. And just get it done right on your time schedule according to your will. And you start going, does God even care about me? Is God really there? Listen, folks. God doesn't operate on your timetable nor mine. You and I operate on what we have right in front of us. That's the most important thing to us. And God is working on an eternal time scale. As a matter of fact, First Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied the coming of the Messiah, they were telling the truth, but they didn't live to see it. God spoke through them, and they said stuff that they never even got to experience. Wow. Mm. So you may pray that prayer, and you, God may not hop right up on the, you know, out of the bottle and just get with it real quick, on your, but you don't know what he's going to do in the future. You have no idea. So what we have to do is realize, I look here. And my Heavenly Father is working out an eternal time frame. Derek, bring us home and talk about how to respond
0: to it. How do we respond to ridicule? There's two ways at least you can respond. I mean, I guess there's probably more, but at least two general ways you can respond. And the first one is certainly our favorite. We can retaliate. (laughs) Yes, we can retaliate. In our fallen nature, there's nothing I want more than to get even right? Just to trade insult for insult. It's like right when that person begins to ridicule you for something that you've done wrong or, or unwisely that you begin to notice all the things they've done wrong and unwisely. Yeah, you send that singer right back. Absolutely. It always works.
1: It works. It really works in marriage, let me tell you. That'll Absolutely.
0: Get... <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of people end up in Brian Duncan's office That's because right. they think that works in marriage.
1: The reason Brian Duncan is on the staff is to keep people out of his office. That's
0: right. And he does a great job of it. And he does a
1: great job. Scripture warns against
0: this kind of retaliation mindset, right? So Romans twelve seventeen, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 9, something very similar. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless, for this To you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This kind of insult for insult response is not good. It doesn't do anyone any favors. It doesn't make anything any better. Now, you may not be building a wall right now like Nehemiah, but you certainly experience this kind of need for retaliation, as James just mentioned, in your marriage. Because it just feels so good for a minute. (laughs) <laughs> and let's be honest, it's, it's it's happened, right? We do this. We do this kind of thing to our spouses. We're all guilty of ridiculing, and we're all guilty of retaliating when the ridicule comes. And it does literally 0% good for the relationship at all. It just spirals into more and more back and forth fighting, and it gets worse and worse uh, until something breaks the cycle. What about on social media? Oh, his pet peeve,
1: social media. You so, knew that had to come up.
0: Social media. <laughs> This is the only kind of opposition it seems like you face on social There's rarely ever constructive criticism offered on social media. It's almost always just ridicule. And, and, and I love this. In, in his book, Unoffendable, Brant Hansen shares two options that you have when someone <laughs> offends or ridicules on social media. Here's option number one. This is practical stuff right here, folks. Option number one, 4.10 p.m. See insulting comment from Bob371 on blog. 4.15 p.m., stew about it. 4.20 p.m., craft amazingly thorough, literate, snarky reply to set Bob371 straight. 4.30 p.m., hit submit and walk away from the computer, drop the mic style, all smug and cool. 4.40 p.m., return to the computer to delete my smug reply. 4.41 p.m., see that someone has already replied to my smug reply. (laughs) 4.42 p.m., delete my reply anyway, but write another one. 5.30 p.m., eat dinner with my family, but distractedly because I'm bugged by the comments on my blog. (laughs) 5.45 p.m., decide it doesn't matter what people say. I was right. (laughs) 5.50 p.m., See another blood-boiling response from the big jerk formerly known as Bob371. 5.52 p.m. Decide to write something sort of nice but still, you know, making my point. 5.55 p.m. See new comment. Someone else whom I respect thinks I was being a jerk in my original comment. Respond to that person via email to apologize, but not really, because the jerk formerly known as Bob371 is a bigger jerk. 6.10 p.m. Write another comment. Commence stewing about the whole thing until 1.30 a.m. That's one way to handle it. (laughs) Here's option two. 4.10 p.m. See insulting comment from Bob371 on blog. 4.15 p.m. Thank him for it. Point out what I appreciate about it. If I want to continue the conversation, fine. But otherwise, it doesn't matter. 4.20 p.m. Go play Madden NFL with my daughter, get beat 75 to nothing, eat dinner with my family, and laugh about stuff.
1: That's a much better way. Yeah, (laughs) right?
0: Option one is all about retaliating. Option two is really the second way we can respond, and that is by releasing right? Releasing someone from the offense. This is the second way of responding and certainly the better way of responding. You you consider if what the person is saying is true, whether there is insult or not, evaluate it, see if there's anything true, take what is true and apply it, and then release the person from their offense and move on. But it's hard, isn't it? (laughs) It's very hard. I love Paul David Tripp's words about this. Paul David Tripp's a Christian counselor, uh, theologian, Uh, And he talks about why we get upset at these kinds of things. He says, why do any of us get upset or tense when confronted? Why do any of us activate our inner lawyer and rise to our own defense? Why do any of us turn the tables and remind the other person that we are not the only sinner in the room? Why do we argue about the facts or dispute the person's interpretation? We do all of these things because we are convinced in our hearts that we are more righteous than how we are being portrayed in the moment of confrontation. That is a key phrase right there. I am convinced I'm more righteous than what I'm being given credit for, dang it. I'm a better person than that. I'm a better person than that. (laughs) Proud people don't welcome rebuke, confrontation, question, criticism, or accountability because they don't feel the need for it. And when they do fail, they're very good at erecting plausible reasons for what they said or did, given the stress of the situation or the relationship in which it was done. Tripp, by the way, was on the staff uh, to counsel staff members of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. If you're familiar with the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, you've heard uh, Tripp speak on that. And and what Tripp says is, I believe, really important to understanding why we respond in this way. I go into attack mode when someone ridicules me when I forget who I am. That's what it comes down to. When I operate out of pride and not humility, when I am convinced I am more righteous than I am being portrayed, when I take personal offense, what it reveals to me is that I have forgotten my place in the the line of authority and the structure of power. Listen, understand this for a moment. Think about this. If you are doing what you believe God has called you to do, it's rooted in Scripture, there's wisdom to it, it's confirmed by wise counsel, and you are walking in obedience to your calling, and someone begins to ridicule you and the plan that you are, in, you are acting on, who are they really ridiculing? They're ridiculing God, not me. I'm just the one doing what I believe God called me to do, and it's so, been confirmed by so wise counsel. So would
1: work if you responded and said, well, you're just ridiculing You're just ridiculing God, God. yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, but understand that. Now, wise counsel is important, Right? You don't just get in your mind, well, God's having me do this, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean God's having you do it. <laughs> Sometimes your voice sounds an awful lot like God's voice. <laughs> ring, ring, who's calling God? Right. But, but if you have wise counsel in your life saying, no, I believe the Lord is calling you to this, I believe he's equipped you for this, I believe doors have opened for you that you could have nother, uh, otherwise never opened, then you can trust that I'm walking in obedience, and if someone ridicules me, it's not really about me. Because I'm just the one doing what God has called me to do. I love Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. In other words, when you became a, a believer, when you were born again, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word sealed, that's not talking about like sealing a Ziploc baggie right? You're not like sealed. The seal is an ancient way of showing authority and ownership. A king would have a seal on his ring that he would then seal messages that he was sending to other kings, and an ambassador would take that message, and if that seal was intact, the person reading it knew this comes from the king. It hasn't been tampered with. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, God calls several of his individuals, his prophets, he, he refers to them as his signet ring, the one who goes on behalf of him mm-hmm. as an ambassador. What Paul is saying is you are now an ambassador of Christ. You are now a, 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 you are being led by him. Your authority is gone. You are under the authority now of the one who has sealed you with his ring. So when someone criticizes me, what they're criticizing is not me, it's the seal of the Holy Spirit on me when I'm walking in obedience to it. You understand that? It's all about remembering. So, so think about it again. As an ambassador with a king, he has the message. It's been sealed by the king. He goes to the crowd. He gives them the letter. They read the letter and they go, this is a stupid plan. This is dumb. Who came up with this? You think the ambassador's getting his feelings hurt? Like, sorry guys, I... Go take, talk to the king. Take it up with the king. Take it up with the king. This isn't about me. You see, I get, I get into attack mode when I make it about me, when I forget that I'm the ambassador and I believe I'm the king. And sometimes I am the king in that situation because it ain't the, the king's plan. It's my own. And I <laughs> overstepped my bounds. And I got to reconsider that. But if I'm really walking in the obedience that God has called me to, then I don't have to defend that. I don't have to get my feelings hurt about that. I just move on. Hey, thanks. Thanks for your, your, your opinion on that. I appreciate that.
1: So it comes down really to having a little bit of wisdom on, is this constructive criticism that yeah. I need to receive? Yeah. Or is this ridicule that I need to reject? Absolutely. And that's not as easy sometimes as we would like for it to be because our flesh gets involved. That's right. In this whole description. So the first thing is, is this of God or not? If it is, I should be able to stand in all kinds of ridicule. I'm thinking, you know, today we hear people all the time say, well, you know, didn't Jesus say he was coming again? Well, yeah. Uh, And then they go, well, hadn't it been 2,000 years? Yeah. Well, duh. If it was real, he'd already be here, wouldn't he? Well, if he was working on my time frame, it would. Yeah. But you see, because I work on what's right in front of me. He works on an eternal time frame. And the reason they call it faith, walking by faith, is because you have to trust in the character of the one who sent you. That's right. Folks, don't get di- diverted day by day, because this is a much bigger ball game that he has called us to be a part of. Even the prophets didn't get to see the fulfillment.
0: And let me just uh, let me close with this. I don't ever want to miss an opportunity to, to, to share about this, because I think it's important. This is one of the reasons why we're so, we're so insistent when people walk in to try out a freedom group at some point in your time here at City on the Hill. Because everything that James talked about, the the competence, the heritage, where you come from, those tapes that play in your mind that that you believe or that you struggle to not believe because they're, they're so convincing, you could never amount to this, you're not worth anything, you can't do this, those come from somewhere. That's coming from a place in your past, a hurt, an experience, something that happened to you. And you will, until you deal with that, always see the world through those lenses. You will. It's who you are. And until you allow the Holy Spirit to confront those things with the truth of God that you are not those things, that you are not your heritage, that you have a new heritage in Christ, that you have a new lineage in Christ, that you have a, you are a new creation in Christ, you'll never escape that. And so you'll come to Bible study and you'll come to sermons and you'll go to home groups or you'll do whatever it is that you're doing here and you'll hear and you'll learn but you will only hear and learn through the lenses of those experiences because they never go away until you deal with them. The Holy Spirit can bring healing to those things, but you have to get into the process and allow it to happen. And so ask yourself the question as you leave today, I want you to think about this as you go, when was the last time I really seriously considered dealing with some of that? When was the last time I took a freedom group? Have I ever taken a freedom group? What's preventing me from doing that? Is Is it time? Don't give me time. No one is busier than us. We find time to do this stuff. I know how much, the statistics tell me how much you watch Netflix. You have time. <laughs> and look, I'm not, I'm not upset about that. Netflix is a great thing. Hey, if you've got Netflix, it's not can, a priority. I, can
1: I snap your account? Yeah,
0: here he goes. But understand, it's not about time. It's not about, it's about whether or not you're willing to confront it. When you're ready and you do it, you won't, you won't be disappointed. You'll, you'll, you'll probably be a little shocked. But I've never met someone that left a freedom group after 13 weeks and was like, what a waste of time. I didn't learn anything. I've, a lot of, I've met a lot of people who thought, I should have done this 10 years ago. Yeah. I hope you'll consider that. I hope you'll pray about that. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what a, what a practical look at how we handle something that is, is sadly so prevalent in our world, just ridicule, and how we deal with it, how we handle it. And I pray, God, that you would, you would constantly remind us uh, of our new identity and our new heritage, and, and that we would not retaliate, Lord, but that we'd release that person from their offense. We'd, we'd evaluate what they say, apply the truth, and then just move on. And, and and remember that this is not even my plan anyways, it's yours. And if it is my plan, I need to abandon it and, and get back on your plan. I pray, God, that you would you would speak and encourage and, and motivate and, and move in the, the hearts of every one of these people here in, in exactly the way that they need it. God, that your Holy Spirit knows their hearts and And uh, would be able to apply these truths in a way that is uh, relevant and practical for each of them. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. Pray these things in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. Have a great week. See you next week. See ya.